righty, and we are back with uh, episode four of Cibolo Creek Conversations. And uh, my name is Wyatt Marchant. I haven't actually introed us this way. Man, throwback to season one. I'm Wyatt Marchant, said it right, and I'm here with Mr. Paul Wilson. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. Good, doing good. good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I've, uh, I've enjoyed these so far, and um, the YouTube is getting more views than I, kinda, than I thought it would. Is and that it, right? And it, and it isn't me going back and looking at it myself. <laughs> Granted, a lot isn't a lot for what I was expecting. I was not expecting as many, but we still don't have a lot. Yes. So don't don't misconstrue we're, my words. We're still a boutique kind of podcast. Yeah, yeah. We're like the uh, the hole in the wall place you go in some rinky dink town for, for lunch. Yeah, before it gets discovered, and then somebody does a profile on it, and it blows up. Yeah, we're the Bernie that's gone forever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All those signs. Yeah. Only people who live in Bernie will actually get that. But <laughs> but anyways, um, yeah, yeah, Bernie gone forever. But we are going to talk about, um, kind of going along with your recent teaching, um, uh, as we have in the past few weeks, though in the next couple of weeks we're going to be doing something a little bit different after both Paul and I study up enough to even attempt to talk about it. Um, <laughs> today we're going to talk about uh, something you recently taught on, which you've been doing these encounters that Jesus had with different individuals in the Bible. Right. Um, and that's all in an effort to, uh, or not in an effort, it's all part of a larger discussion of what is it like to actually have a relationship with Jesus. Am I right? Yes. So two distinctions I've been making uh really since January when we get started on this study, was um, this isn't a study on why you should have a relationship with Jesus. This isn't about, like, the urgency of having a relationship with Jesus as it relates to, like, salvation and eternal life and all of those things. Those are great topics, but that's not the focus of this current study um, I'm really interested in trying to describe for people some sort of a picture they can get their their hands around on the idea of what is a relationship with Jesus like? Um, how does it behave? How, how does it work? And so we've been looking at it from a number of different angles. We looked at the angle of faith, looked at the angle of what the Bible calls our heart, this intangible part. With, with, we, with which we relate to life and to people. We've talked about our soul, um, ways that we nurture our soul that are real vital to this relationship with Jesus. And then we recently took a little little turn, still the same topic, how to have a relationship with Jesus, but now I'm looking at some encounters that we come across in the in the gospel records of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where Jesus either has an extended conversation with somebody or it they he has a relationship with them a friendship particularly like maybe one of his disciples and looking at what can we learn from those relationships that Jesus had with those people that might apply to or be relevant to our understanding of having a relationship with him mm-hmm. And um, I, I was telling the audience on Sunday is uh, I had to encourage them to remember we're looking at what we can learn about the relationship rather than what we can learn from the passage. 
So like in the first week of this encounter series, um, we looked at the woman at the well and there's, there's some, you know, really wonderful spiritual, uh, themes in that passage. One of which is when Jesus offers her the, um, living water and it would have been completely fair in treating the passage to say well let's talk about living water but it wasn't necessarily instructive to this dynamic of his relationship with her or her relationship with him so we ended up looking at her testimony that is mentioned i think three times in the passage where she says this man told me everything I've ever done. So that's really what we explored Mm -hmm. was in a relationship with Jesus, you need to know that he knows everything you've ever done. And you know, what all does that mean by way of implication? And um, this past Sunday, we, we looked at the encounter of Jesus with Nicodemus and certainly probably at the center of that passage is Jesus saying, you must be born again. And I could have developed the whole message around what does it mean to be born again. Great topic, but it isn't necessarily instructive as to what is it like to have a relationship with Jesus. Mm. And so we ended up kind of venturing off on a a different perspective of um, at least that passage in John chapter 3, and that was from the perspective of who was Nicodemus who was Jesus, and what were the dynamics that were going on there that have implication on what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus? Why did you choose to do Nicodemus? I actually haven't asked you that about any of the previous ones. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, so I think I've, I've chosen six. Um, we'll actually do this all the way through Easter, and I'm going to do another encounter for Easter Sunday but um you know I thought initially I thought well I'm going to I'm going to choose really obscure ones find some people in the gospels that rarely ever get talked about and um I just I, I don't know why I decided against it other than I wanted to at least start with some sort of a kind of a familiar base most people they're familiar with the story of the woman at the well they're they're um, familiar with the story of Nicodemus. This week I'll be talking about the story of Matthew. So they're familiar with that story. So then basically that give, that affords me the luxury of not having to, you know, do a lot of work around explaining the story because mm-hmm. they have kind of a fundamental familiarity with it. That allows me kind of a little quicker access to what it is that I'm trying to get them to focus on. Yeah, well, I thought that Nicodemus, I mean, I think that all of the ones you've chosen are appropriate, and I'm sure that all of his encounters uh, are appropriate in some way, shape, or form, but I thought that Nicodemus, uh, being who he is, um, the teacher of Israel, being a Pharisee, um, very just educated in general, for our culture, um, and just even just the way that we think, Mm -hmm. today... Um, very logically and scientifically, um, I found him a, uh, appropriate for us to look at, particularly with the point that you ended up drawing, um, which was uh, 
you asked us a question and you asked, um, are you too smart for your own good, essentially? Kind of dive in and explain that. Yeah, so again, we could have looked at the passage and what John was, you know, why he recorded it. It was probably more along the lines of uh, the discovery of being born again, the importance of it. But we're looking at the angle of relationship. And so I just, I was um, struck by the fact that John makes the case in his early introduction of Nicodemus. He basically names or describes three really powerful credentials. He's a Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. And Jesus refers to him as Israel's teacher, which suggests that maybe Nicodemus was, in fact, the most popular, most powerful teacher in the life of the nation of Israel. And they sort of look to Nicodemus as sort of the final authority for, you know, a truth or an understanding of, of the Old Testament scriptures. And so I was struck by that because I think that has some real relational elements to it. And, and what I ended up netting out is that those credentials of Pharisee, Sanhedrin, and Israel's teacher um, placed Nicodemus in a pretty small circle of people when it came to intelligence and when it came to influence. You didn't get to be a Pharisee unless you were really, really smart. Mm-hmm highly disciplined in a study of the scriptures and contrary to the picture that's painted in the gospels uh, they were a deeply devoted fraternity of men who had this deep deep faith in god and what was best for the nation of israel so to be invited into that fraternity that was that was already a small circle in the nation as a whole and to be a member of the Sanhedrin, one of 71 people who qualified for that position. And then if, in fact, Jesus is saying Nicodemus was like Israel's most prominent teacher, it's just it just demonstrates how big of a deal he was. And we, can, we could probably sit around all day and... and and discuss why did he come to Jesus? Why did he come at night? There's all sorts of different propositions about that. But um, in that discussion, I think it's very uh, revealing that if he's who he who he's um, described to be Pharisee, Sanhedrin, Israel's teacher, and then when Jesus talks to him or says to him about you must be born again. Nicodemus doesn't even have a category for it. Yeah. He's like he all he can think of is the most obvious or physical sense of it and says am I supposed to climb into my mother's womb a second time and start over? Like that's how clueless he was about what Jesus describes as the central entry requirement to get into the kingdom. And yet here's Nicodemus as the most prominent, one of the most prominent people in the entire nation and perhaps one of the most influential people in the nation who's guiding the nation about topics of faith and about devotion and about what every Jew longed for, and that was to know that they would enter the kingdom of God. And he doesn't even know the most basic requirement. And 
there's a big discussion about, you know, why would he have not known that? And, you know, there's a host of passages in the Old Testament that talk about the place and the work of the Holy Spirit and um, how the Holy Spirit, like, basically creates um, spiritual life in the human heart, and you can't obey God unless you have that life. And, you know, Nicodemus and his whole fraternity was all about getting people to obey God. And yet they were missing this one primary ingredient or the most important catalyst to obedience, and that is the spiritual renewal of a heart. And so I just, it struck me is that here's one of the smartest men in all of Israel who was clueless about this fundamental fact of um, a relationship with God. And so it's, it's the classic example of this phrase we use, too smart for your own good. Mm-hmm. And um, we meet people who um, they are, they're so incredibly intelligent and often they are perceived or they perceive themselves as being, you know, very wise. And yet they, they don't make room for God. They don't recognize Jesus. They don't trust the scriptures and so God, on the other side of that, is looking at them and saying, well, you're foolish because you're missing the most important truth in all of life. And so too smart for their own good, they, they don't recognize the danger that they're in having basically, um, basically blocked God out of how they think about life. Yeah, because whatever way that they're looking at the world, I guess whatever metrics they're using uh, have have stopped the possibility of God from actually coming in. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and we all think that, we all kind of think that we know better in that way. Um, that we know better than God, that we know better uh, timing, that we um, know that, well, if God was fill in adjective, then he would do this. Yeah. Why do you think that we, I mean, is it just pride on our part or what is, what are kind of some of the factors that go into, um, particularly like us now thinking that we know better than God? Do we just not have the humility? Is that just at the end of the day, kind of what it is? We just don't have the humility to put down our scientific logical way of thinking about it or what? Um, it's probably a, a number of different factors and different proportions in each person. Some of it's probably, yeah, downright arrogance to think I have it all figured out and I'm smarter than anybody or anything. So you can't tell me about God because I don't believe it. So you have kind of this outright arrogance about it. Some of it's ignorance. Some people, you know, they, they don't even... They don't even think well. They don't think deeply. They don't think thoroughly. So, you know, they just take somebody else's word for it. They've never really wrestled with the facts um, in any kind of um, edu- educated or intentional kind of way. Um, I think I think another one would be, and this is actually pretty popular and probably the one that I was most 
um, interested in addressing this past Sunday is we just have a whole world, a whole nation at least, that places so much credibility on, you know, the expert. And so I hear people all the time say, well, there's this one author that I read. And they've basically just adopted that author's Mm -hmm. philosophy or point of view. Or they say, well, you know what? There was some research done out at, you know, just name any any of the Ivy League, you know, school. Harvard did this study and, you know, these philosophers, these theologians, these doctors, whoever, you know, whatever the, the, the basis of the credibility is. And they say, well, the research shows that's not true. Or um, I had a professor in college, and I really liked him. He was such a great thinker. And so you just swallowed everything that he had to say as the truth. And having never really done your research and never done a thorough research of any kind on your own. You've just taken somebody else's word for it. Mm. And so um, I think there's probably a a couple of different explanations about why we're prone to that. But um, again, I guess they could probably align the same things toward me, you know, in my viewpoint, all I'm, all I'm curious about is that if I trust the the authority and the truth of the Bible, I have a Bible full of evidence to suggest that God stands outside of our, you know, our system and he looks at it and if it wasn't for his enormous love and and care for human beings, he'd probably just smirk and like what idiots because <laughs> they don't even begin to comprehend what I know. I've always liked to say, you know, so many people think they have it figured out, but they're not even asking the right questions. Yeah. So they've come up with answers for the questions they know to ask, and God stands outside the system and goes, "You don't know the half of it. You you don't you haven't even scratched the surface of what I comprehend." And uh, this past Sunday, because we, we're constantly running out of time, or I'm constantly mismanaging <laughs> my time, I could only you know just recommend people to read Isaiah 40. I, I just, I find Isaiah 40 to be a really fascinating uh, portrait of God. And there's two parts of it that I think are just fascinating is God, God's asking the question, who else in all of the universe can hold the universe in the palm of their hand, which is just a picture for people to try to get um, some sort of a, an image in mind. And he's basically saying, well, there isn't anybody else. It's only me that can hold the entire universe in the palm of my hand. And again, it's not a literal hand. It's not a literal palm. It's a metaphor to say, I control everything. I, yeah. I make everything work. I am the sovereign creator and sustainer of all. And then later in the passage of Isaiah 40, um, God asked the question, who, who's been my counselor? Who do I go to looking for advice? Who, who are the authors I read to kind of get my perspective? And he's, he's saying, uh, well, nobody. Yeah. Cause I know all and I am all truth. And so he's, he's asking those questions to get the reader to recognize, Oh yeah, there's nobody smarter than God. 
there's nobody more powerful than God, which the implication would be, well, that means I'm not smarter than him and I'm not more powerful than him either. So I'd be wise to recognize that. But we have a world that's, you know, it, it, it's, it dismisses God from the equation. I mean, we just look at the whole evolution discussion. It's like, well, there can't be a God, so there has to be another explanation for how this works. So we, we push God out of the equation, so now we have to make up some sort of our own sense of things. Yeah. And ultimately what you're doing is you're putting human beings at the pinnacle of what can be known. And we know that human beings are limited. Yeah. And I don't care. You could take the smartest person in the universe and they still don't understand it all. They still haven't seen it all like God has. And so um, I think I think that's, that's that ultimate uh, place of faith where we just recognize I'll never be smarter than God. And so the option that I offered at the end of the service is for people to consider is I can resist that. I can kind of cross my, you know, my emotional or intellectual arms and go, no, I don't believe in God and I don't believe in, you know, X, Y, Z, just name any of the beliefs that lean toward God. You can say, no, I, I'm smarter than that because I read a book or I had a professor or I did some research all in our very limited human capacity or I mean you can resist it or you can rest in it you can rest in knowing that I'm in a relationship with the smartest person in the universe Mm. and so I don't have to have all the answers and I don't have to figure it all out and I can trust him with those things that don't make sense or I haven't reconciled I, I can trust him to know better about what's best for me yeah yeah, I noticed uh, a lot of the, I guess they're called the new atheists. So like your Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, they've kind of made a mockery out of religion. Um, and they're both incredibly intelligent men, um, but they've made it to where like <laughs> just someone who reads a Sam Harris book all of a sudden starts mocking religion with like the same vigor. Yeah. And, um, and, and, uh, I kind of, I really enjoyed seeing, uh, well, the um, the evil Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris have a debate. Um, it was like four part uh, about religion. And um, it was very interesting because Sam would come in and he would try to do kind of that mockery. And, well, you can't, there's not many things that uh, you can make seem stupid that Peterson is like on the side of and get away with it very well. But um, yeah, I see a lot of people do that. And, and, and I see a lot of people, yeah, like you said, they just kind of take hold of these things that they read, no matter what it comes to. Um, and all of a sudden, well, the other sides, anybody who doesn't think of this, because uh, any source of authority has said so, um, Anybody who doesn't believe them is obviously just uneducated, stupid, yeah. whatever it may be. Which is, is just a way of just a way of obstructing the arg- or the discussion. It's just it's a yeah. it's a defense mechanism because of their failure to be able to explain 
um, their position. Um, I could be wrong in in who said these words, and I may not quote him exactly. So that's a strong selling uh, that I just nice. did there. I think it was Desmond Tutu said something like, um, "Don't raise your voice. Just come up with a better argument." Yeah. And so he's using it, you know, as the person who tries to power up in a discussion or a debate and starts yelling and screaming. And he's saying, hey, relax. Just come at your argument a better way. Don't, don't try to shut this down or intimidate me by, you know, the size of your, your aggression. Well, we're seeing the same with, um, you know, making fun of or mocking or um, now the big thing is to, to shut down an argument or to, you know, quiet the, the, the opponent. It's just to, you know, label them. Well, you're a racist or you're a homophobe or you're a transphobe or you're white supremacist or you're, you know, the patriarchy. And, and all those words are so highly charged that the person who they're being aligned against well they they know that's not true but they don't want anybody to even suspect or to you know to think that that might be true so when the person who they're arguing with uh, you know maligns them with one of these labels what we're seeing now is people backing away because well i don't want to be perceived as a racist i don't want to be perceived as homophobic or whatever when being a racist or homophobic is it isn't anything to do with that person. It's just that's the easy way to shut down the argument and look like you won. Yeah, that's called problematizing. Oh, is that right? Mm-hmm. Very, yeah, yeah. Highly used strategy that most people don't know that they're actually doing it. <laughs> I didn't know there was a word for it. Oh yeah, yeah. There's a word for it. All right. But it's it's happening all over the place these days, and and I've been, you know, I don't. I don't savor arguments like that get heated. I, I generally, um, I, I, I've generally learned that if, if, a, if I'm in a dicey discussion with someone and it starts to get really heated, I'll generally say, Hey, um, you're getting worked up. I'm getting worked up. That's not going to go any place constructive. I'm not going to convince you. Otherwise you're not going to convince me otherwise. So what do you just say? We, we put this on the shelf for right now. Um, but I, I, I play around in my head like, well, what's some other ways that I could navigate through a, a confrontation like that? And I guess it's probably the less sanctified parts of my heart where I go, well, if you're going to call me a racist as a way to intimidate me, then I'm just going to fire back and say, well, you're a pedophile. Mm. And they're going to go, well, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm going to go, well, you're not a more, any more a pedophile than I am a racist. <laughs> but I'm just using your tactic. Your tactic was designed to try to intimidate me and, and push me back in the argument because now you called me a name. So what if I just assumed the worst about you and said, well, I, I saw you shake hands with the kid one time. And so now I'm just, I'm just aligning the worst uh, kind of character yeah. caricature of you as a way as, of putting you back on your heels. Well, as you can imagine, that's not a 
constructive way to move through a constructive discussion. So I haven't tried that tactic with anybody because I, 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 I question the, the motive behind it. It's not a pure motive, so it wouldn't, um, it wouldn't be an effective strategy long over the long haul. And so, you know, I'm a, I love the topic of wisdom. So I would say that wisdom would inform me not to use their tactics as a way of responding to a discussion. So I, I think of it more as the wise approach would be to say, hey, listen, we're getting worked up here. And that's not going to be conducive to any kind of mutual respect and whatever friendship we have. So let's just agree to disagree rather than, you know, just keep spinning our wheels on, you know, the sides that we take. And I, I think, I think that's one of the frustration things about frustrating things about contemporary argument. And again, that's not yelling and screaming, but having discussion yeah. about opposing viewpoints one of the frustrating things is we're not really listening to each other. We're just waiting for the opportunity for us to push our viewpoint on this other person. We're not trying to understand each other and we're not even really look, we're not even in any way working towards some sort of common ground that we can agree on in some sort of a, you know, constructive solution to our differences. Mm -hmm. We're we're all so polarized and our ideological or ideological, you know, perspective is so entrenched that all we're doing is just, we're just, you know, battling with each other about really critical discussions. And I, it's just not healthy. Yeah. Um, I think it's just going to fragment our society even more, yeah. you know, kind of push us all so far into our corners. Everybody's going to become an enemy if they don't hold my particular viewpoint and perspective. And if the, you know, the name calling and the labeling uh, keeps on the pace that it does, I can really see a, a, a society that just, uh, keeps to itself. We literally walk down the street and never engage another person for the risk that we're going to say or do something that's going to be perceived or, you know, labeled. And it's just, it's destroying trust between people. And so I could, I could just imagine sort of in the long term logic of it is that we just all sort of dwell in our own little isolated world rather than risk moving toward each other and finding out that we disagree because we think the disagreement's going to lead to you know division and argument and fracture and yelling and screaming nobody wants that yeah but typically people don't want that yeah unless they're being feisty um <laughs> no i agree and um something that i've always tried to do when having disagreements with people is just ask questions, particularly if it's like something that I've studied, which is kind of just like a lot of the more 
Mm, I'm going to call them evil I- ideologies, ideas that are kind of going around in society right now. Um, I I wholeheartedly believe that they um, aren't. They don't. They're they're indefensible. And so if you just ask enough questions to the people that hold them, well, you're not going to hit anything. There's nothing yeah. there. Yeah. So you can just keep asking questions. Um, but it's also just a good strategy in general because I want to genuinely try to figure out the best that I can what the other person believes. And to his credit, Nicodemus does that. Like he, he though he's the teacher of Israel, he asks like the stupid question of, you mean I'm supposed to go back in my mother's womb? Yeah. It's like... Um, well, he never would have understood if he didn't ask, right? Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting if that's the first encounter that we have with Nicodemus, and then there's some others later in the gospel records, particularly around the the death and burial of Christ. And you get the impression that Nicodemus is, is sincerely curious. Yeah. That he's, you know, he's this, he's this impressive big wig in the nation, kind of the intellectual um, influencer. But he has his own questions. And maybe maybe that's why he's meeting with Jesus at night, is that he can't risk the social stigma that would come with admitting that he has questions about the things he believes. Yeah. Because he's, you know, he's the powerhouse. And so, um, again, I've heard a couple of different viewpoints on why they met at night, but that one, that one, uh, the idea that he was trying to risk his exposure of the other seventy members of the Sanhedrin or his other fraternal, you know, brothers in the fair uh, on the in the group of the Pharisees seeing him, because they would have asked the question, "What were you doing? What yeah. were you asking him?" And for him to be honest he would have been saying, well, I have some questions about what I believe. Yeah. Well, you can't question, not with not with what you've declared, not the influence that you have. And, and so it's interesting in the other episodes where we meet Nicodemus and his response to seeing to it that Jesus is properly treated following his crucifixion, you, you kind of get the impression that He's sincerely seeking the faith that Jesus talked about. Yeah. You know, I actually think that, and I could be wrong about this, but I actually think that it's probably because he was the wisest teacher that he actually came and asked Jesus the questions. Yeah. Like he was, he was the only one that, I guess, maybe not the only one, but I would say that because of his um, knowledge, that is what, led him to be so curious about Jesus because he saw something there, he just didn't understand it. Exactly. Yeah. Like, it's interesting, he says in John 3, um, we know that you are a teacher come from God, which it sounds like he's speaking as a representative, not that they officially sent him as their representative. But I think what he's saying is, you know, us Pharisees, we sit around and talk about you, over lunch and us Sanhedrin we've we've had a couple of closed door meetings trying to figure out who are you and we've generally concluded well you might be from God because like he says in the passage nobody else could do these signs these miracles unless God was a part of it and he's not saying we believe you're God 
He's just believing there's a divine element. You're doing some things that we've, in our history, the records of our history show that God was a part of the miracles of, you know, Moses and the miracles of, of uh, the prophets. And so they're, they're like, this, this could be something quite, um, something we haven't seen in a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, I think he's smart enough to be asking some real questions in light of this new evidence that he has in this rabbi called Jesus that's different from all the other rabbis. Yeah. Am I... I know that it says it in the New Testament, but I'm, well, I'm sure it says it in the Old, but um, like you kind of made a reference to this, but the Pharisees were kind of made out to be um, the bad guys for for us to easily understand. They were made out to be the bad guys. And, and, and we also know that they were, um, they had a spoken uh, law that they just kind of introduced, I believe. And they were obviously had corruption amongst them. Um, but for somebody like Nicodemus, that for all intents and purposes, I don't know any, I don't, I don't believe it's in, nothing negative was like attributed to him. He was probably as influential as was and respected because he was so, like, just such a stand up. Yeah, upstanding yeah, kind of person. Example of a Pharisee. Would he also then have reason to believe that, like, he was going to be judged harsher? Like, because I know that in the New Testament it says that, that teachers or will be judged um, more harshly. Yeah, harshly. And so, would he also have a reason to believe that? Um, probably not likely. Only in the sense that those words of revelation are after that account. So mm-hmm. that's James writing yeah. that that revelation that those who teach will be judged more harshly. However, I think. There's probably plenty of um, passages in the Old Testament scriptures that would that would demonstrate that those who teach or those who have influence have a greater responsibility. Um, whether he was aware of that, I don't know. I I'm more curious that what um, was really the the cause of um, his searching was why in the world did Jesus say, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again, mm-hmm. other than he knew that that's what Nicodemus was curious about. Because it's not Nicodemus who asked, how do I get to the kingdom of God? It's, it's, it's a very abrupt sort of transition in the passage. John tells us who Nicodemus was. Nicodemus is declaring, hey, we think that you might be divine. And then Jesus says, very truly, I tell you. Now, whether there was anything, you know, between that in the conversation and what's actually, you know, reported in the Gospel of John, it's like Jesus was leading the discussion. And I'm going to assume that he's leading the discussion based on what he understands is most curious to Nicodemus. Mm. So I can all, we can also assume that, um, I guess, would it then be safe to assume that, uh, I guess, for Jesus is kind of leading the discussion with us as well in that 
like the point you made, well, Jesus is always going to be the smartest person in the room. Um, I guess, what do we do? I guess, what are some good pieces of advice that we can take? What does it look like to kind of act out? Um, is it just something you have to start believing? Like, hey, I, Jesus is smarter than me, so trying to figure all this stuff out is a waste of time? Or um, what's the balance between earnestly discovering what you believe and being okay to rest in the fact that you can't figure everything out. Yeah. So there is a balance, but that balance is, is created by a tension of wanting to be sure, wanting to figure things out. Um, I think those are inclinations God places in us, a curiosity of, of spiritual things. Um, and then the other side of that is just trusting what God says. Um, I think there's, there is a balance there. And that is, I can be incredibly curious about all sorts of unknowns, all sorts of questions and dilemmas that I have that I don't have solutions for. And you know, you can think about them as much as you want. You can research as much as you want. You may still never come to a solid conclusion. And you could drive yourself mad trying to find the conclusion. Yeah, I've just tossed out some topics that I'm just like, <laughs> I'm only 24 and I'm like, this is just not a road that's worth walking down too far. And so I think it's instead of driving yourself mad as you go, I'm just going to have to trust God on this. I can't, in my limited frame of mind, my limited abilities, I'm never going to be able to answer this question. So I'll trust him. I can trust that he's, he's not messing with me. I can trust that he's told the truth. I may not understand it. I see this all the time with, um, you know, people who lose a loved one, particularly if it's a child or, um, even an adult where there's there's a sense of injustice to it. Oh, you know, somebody's killed by a drunk driver or mm. somebody dies when they're 40 and they leave, you know, three kids and a wife behind. And there's a certain sense of injustice that like, why would God let that to happen? Why would God do that? And you'll, you'll never answer that question. I don't care who you are. You'll never really know the answer to the why. And so that's a, so what happens is when some, when some people can't answer the questions that they have, they figure, well, because I can't answer them, then I'll just give up. I won't believe any of it. And that's where a lot of people walk away from their faith is they're like, well, I had these questions. I couldn't reconcile them. And so I just decided there, there isn't really any good answer. And I'd be a fool to insist that this, this is legitimate. I think that's the part of, you know, sort of driving yourself mad. You come to the end of what you can make sense of if God has said that something to be true, but I still don't understand it. It's not that God's broken. It's just that I'm incapable in my human limitations. So I just have to resign myself to trust that if God says something to be true, I will believe it. Yeah. I, I came to this conclusion really early on in my faith, but um, I found that like a lot of the time after 
whenever somebody asks the question, well, why did God let this happen? Regardless of if, or why did God do this? Regardless of God did or planned those things or just simply allowed them to, there's a distinction there. But regardless of that, um, I see, I think, I think that a lot of people actually miss what God does with the mess that is afterwards, regardless of his involvement with what caused it. They miss what God's doing over here in their, or, or, or they risk missing the redemption that God can bring from an ugly situation if they're focused on why he, quote unquote, allowed the thing to happen in the first place. Sure. Um, so I have, I, I, I remember early on always telling people like, hey, um, regardless if he did or didn't do it, he is going to, he's a redeemer. And so he can make things better one way or another. And so if you just, it, you have to look for it, but that's wanting. And maybe then you could say, well, you're just wanting to see the good, right? Mm-hmm. What other choice do we have? You want to see the bad. That's your other option for yeah. one. Yeah. And so in that same way, it's like, well, what is your motivation? I think motivation plays a big role too. Cause people will say, I've had a friend who said, man, I was like really reaching out to God. Um, and I just didn't get anything. So now he's an atheist. And I'm like, okay, but, and I guess this is kind of me making an assumption, but I would be very hard pressed if in the back of his mind, he didn't already kind of check off, check off the God doesn't exist box and then just wanted to prove his own position. Yeah. It became a, in what you described, it could have become kind of a easy rationale to um, excuse what it is that he had already come to conclude. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's always very involved. So it's like, well, I really want to live my life this way. I know this is contrary to how God would have me to live. So then if I can find a good reason to dismiss God from the equation, then I'm free to live like I want to live. Yeah. Or, yes. Yeah, they go, yeah, that's a whole other people, <laughs> people go digging for justifications for things that are blatantly said otherwise. And oh. I'm like, don't go, you're pulling something, per, maybe you're right, but boy, you had to really dig down deep. And it and that statement right there contradicts it, and it's in the same book. Anyways. Um, yeah, yeah, and we're seeing this in society in spades right now is, Essentially, I want to live exactly how I want to live. Nobody can tell me how I should live. Um, therefore, I'll use whatever um, rationale I can come up with to excuse myself from any accountability. And they layer on top of it a lot of different... Uh, phrases and words and they call it church hurt or whatever it is <laughs> and 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 don't get me wrong there's real examples of all of those things of course and there's also real examples of being indoctrinated to believe and do certain things that uh, are contrary or or they do not match what scripture says but that's just called learning unlearning those things is just learning what's true mm. it's not you're not doing anything else. There's nothing big. You don't need to post about it on Facebook, you know? <laughs> right. Um, I mean, I guess you can, whatever. Um, 
but I was going to a place with that. And you forgot your place? Yep. Oh, boy. The beauty of a conversation. This is, this is what happens whenever my head is like, here's a whole bunch of things at one time. <laughs> um, well, when you think of it, we'll come back to it. Yeah, I'll try to get there. Um, so we'll move on to just um, kind of how you, you said that we're seeing this in society in spades. Oh, I remember now. Okay. Uh, the heart of most of that is I can't do what I want and I'm upset about it. Yeah. But the, no one likes to admit that because you can make yourself – you can – you can just throw out the bath. You can just throw out the baby, but keep the bathwater that right. way. It's like, well, I'm going to keep this because they can't completely throw out Christianity. I'm going to just reshape it into something else. Oh, happens all the time. Yeah, and and so then, kind of moving to our next discussion, when approaching Scripture, mm-hmm. in this instance, they're going looking for a justification or looking for also what we were talking about um, before about how people would just throw labels. Well, now we can't even trust the early, uh, even, even the apostles. We can't trust the people who put the canon of scripture together. We can't trust um, the church fathers throughout history, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, um, all the other ones. Well, because you could just slap the name patriarchal, yeah, racist on top of them, and it's like, oh boy, wow. So we're just throwing out everything. Yeah, we're okay. we're reshaping history to tell ourselves what we want to hear. Yeah. Which you know the phrase goes, uh, like history's written by the victor. The people doing this haven't even won yet; they're just rewriting as we go. <laughs> yeah, probably because they. Well, I'll be careful. <laughs> I was I was gonna say maybe because they know they've lost or losing, they're just you know fighting that much harder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There there's a whole reframing going on of morality and history and culture. That's and it's academic and it's political and it's social. I mean, all sorts of fronts where everything's being reframed. And it's just, it's just the Bible coming true. That may be a lousy way to say that. It's just the Bible showing its truth because we go all the way back to earliest pages of the scripture and a society described as, you know, doing what, whatever they wanted to do, what they thought was right in their own eyes. Well, that's on afterburners right now. Like literally everything and anything is right. And so there's all sorts of justification for it. And we'll just find the doctors that will say this and we'll just find the psychologist who will affirm this. And we'll just, we'll just tell this lie so many times it becomes the truth and you know the larger population accepts it, and we'll get some 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 celebrities, you know, big influencers to speak to it, and it'll, we'll just popularize it. We'll just popularize wrong because we don't want it to be wrong anymore because we want to do it. Mm-hmm. And again, God's 
God sits outside the system where all that's happening. And it's in compassion and care, but he just shakes his head like, you're not going to find what you're looking for. I don't care how much freedom you grant yourself. I don't care how much you imagine this will result in sort of this social utopia. It's not. It's not going to work. Yeah. No, I completely agree. And my my question a lot of the time is like, look, Christian, like, following Jesus isn't just something that you add to your life. It's it's something that completely, granted, this statement alone is already in dispute, but it's something that we're supposed to completely transform, born again, like we were discussing with Nicodemus. And, but now we're looking at it as just something that we add to our life. And so that's, I don't understand the insistence upon trying to change doctrine or trying to, to rewrite scripture, essentially, um, whenever you just don't have, you don't have to be associated with it. It's like, if you don't want to follow Jesus and what he would ask you to do, that's like, that's your choice. It's yeah. not fine. I wish that you would follow him, but like, it's, it's your choice. Ultimately, I don't know why you, you I don't know why people insist on trying to make Jesus bow to them whenever they could just not associate. Like, if you don't want to follow, you could have just not, Yeah, don't go, you know? Right. I don't understand the, I don't get it. So rather than saying, I don't want to see that movie, I'm going to dog the movie. I'm going to demean the movie rather than just saying, I don't care to see it, so I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go see that movie. Yeah. You have to somehow destroy the movie. Well, I don't know that I'm. I don't know that I'm equipped to have that discussion in an intelligent fashion. But there's something there. What is it that's driving the need to discredit and dismiss the truth of God? Where Where's that come from? And. It's interesting in the book of uh, Ecclesiastes, I think. Yes, Ecclesiastes. <laughs> Not Song of Solomon. It's in Ecclesiastes. Um, I think it's chapter 12. God has written eternity in their hearts. Um, I'm just curious that, that, that there isn't some sort of, you know, flickering spiritual light inside even the most darkest heart. That's that convicts a conscience that it's wrong, that it's deceived, that it's broken. And so in the last, you know, struggle to um, snuff out that last remaining little bit of light, they have to come to the place where that light's born. So that sounds like god or jesus or the bible so if i'm going to get that little flickering of of you know spiritual life in me to be completely gone then i have to come in and attack where it comes from again that may be kind of raw thoughts it's a dark take it's a very dark take so i come in and i go um, 
I will just, I'll relentlessly discredit God, faith, Jesus, Bible, because I don't want them to exist as some sort of point of accountability. Yes. So the people that don't call themselves Christians, I think so. I guess I'm just confused as by the ones that, I think that that's definitely an element. Like I definitely think that there are, that's why I called some of the ideas evil. Like I think that there are, are evil uh, now I'm going to sound kind of kooky, but I do think that they're evil forces. What's the difference between an ideology that captures people and c- brings them to their downfall and evil forces? It's not that kooky. Just a different name for it. Um, it's the means by which evil forces are used. But I, I guess I was I was confused by the ones that still call themselves Christians, yet like have just tossed out everything. Um, well, whatever whatever end of the spectrum we're talking about, whether it's, you know, the avowed atheist who's demeaning and dismissing all things God, or whether it's the Christian who's who's acquiescing on, you know, fundamental historical principles of truth and wanting it to say what they want it to say, where the whole spectrum the Bible would refer to as deception. Mm. And so we, we do, we have... You know, there's a spiritual realm. God exists on that realm. He interacts with his world, and he interacts with us on that realm. And there's an enemy, and Satan interacts on that realm too. And um, he's called the prince in the power of the air, uh, which I think refers to the fact that Satan is essentially uh, the master of all things cultural and social. And he's using all of the tools and the tricks to influence people by way of deceiving them. And so um, I guess you could look at it from this way. Satan knows he's losing, and uh, it's getting later and later in the game, and so he's just pulling out all the stops. And all that we see that's happening in our world is just kind of this last-ditch effort to try to win. And so he's just ratcheted up the deception game across the entire spectrum. And he, he knows. I mean, he's, he's, he's very smart. He's not omniscient, but he is very smart. And if he can, if he can squelch the power of the church if he can silence the influence of God's truth, if he can pull Christ followers away from a deeply devoted life, he's winning because it basically then, um, it basically suffocates or paralyzes what the church existed for. Yeah. And I think one of the, I think this is, um, Perhaps this is just kind of a, a, a wish, not even wishful thinking, but I guess being too metaphorical, but the fact that Satan is, uh, he, uh, he, is there a verse that says this, or is this just what he's been described as? But is he, he's he who like masquerades as, you, I know you've said this, yeah. masquerades as an as angel a, of light. Yeah, as an angel of light. And so then all of the things that once were truly uh, light are now being turned into darkness. 
and it's like, well, when it, when it, whenever it gets to that point, you're like, okay, well, yeah, there's something, there's something going on that's unusual. Yeah. 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 It's funny as a, you know, as a quote unquote, a preacher, um, and I'm, I'm trying to have the courage to speak to the realities of what we see in our kind of social and cultural experience. Um, it's just funny how many, what we would describe as committed Christians, get really nervous about it and essentially tell me, you know, you, really sh- you should really back off on that. You, you, you shouldn't go there. That makes people uncomfortable or... You know, the popular one is that's political or um, you're you're not sounding very loving or you're making um, people not want to um, come to church. <laughs> There's a little bit of that that says the deception is taking root in your heart to where you you would rather have people be comfortable rather than hearing the truth. I've heard stories from different people. Um, Friends who've kind of like gone on there, either college or teenage years of being stupid, and making a bunch of dumb decisions. Um, and even like myself, like uh, maybe you've even experienced this, but there's been times in, in, I think there's been times that I've heard about or maybe even kind of experienced, not too much myself, but where, and I think you can see it in addicts too. Um, a lot of these people, uh, they've told they've told me or I've, I've read or seen stories that they always wish that someone would just say no, but no one ever did. Like, no one ever argued with them, and and so they just let them keep going. Um, yeah, do you ever watch, uh, I'll be really interested in your answer to this question, do you ever watch American Idol? <laughs> um, I, I watch the bloopers of, like, the worst bits. Yeah, well, that's the part that I'm most interested in. Yeah, right, okay, right I know where you're going. <laughs> yeah. They don't do it so much now. Um, my wife and I, we... we, we we follow it a little bit and but in the early days they used to you know bring the worst singers and they would have a whole part in the show and you know exactly what i'm talking about these people are awful singers they have no musical talent that, that but no one's ever told them that their mom and dad are like oh you sing like an angel and they've had all this you know affirmation to the point that they sincerely believe I might be able to win American Idol and they go on and you're just like, no. And you watch the judges, you know, whoever they are at the time, you watch the judges squirm like saying, oh, I, I don't think you're quite ready for American Idol, but you'll keep practicing. Very rarely, I, I can't think of any too many occasions where when I'm just, you know, maybe Simon, if he's my favorite, um, might have the, you know, the nerve to say something like this to a performer, but like, no dude, you you don't have it. You're horrible. Quit it. 
you know, face up to reality. Um, I, I think that's a little bit of, of where we are. Afraid to, like you just said, afraid to tell somebody no. And we've lived through, you know, the aftermath of the 60s and 70s as far as parenting. Uh, we're, we're in the backwashes of that now. We've got one or two generations of, of people in America who really didn't grow up with a lot of no's and, you know, got told lots of yeses. They were permitted to do anything they wanted, even if you look at it and know that it's not a healthy practice. But nobody told them no. Everyone kept telling them yes, and you're the you're the best, and you're okay, and and so now we have what is that? It's deception. Parents deceived a generation of children into believing that sitting in front of a television for eight hours or you know hours and hours on end, mindlessly playing video games is is an okay way to spend your life. Well, it's not. <laughs> it isn't. And but nobody was nobody had the courage to say no because, you know, we don't want to be the bad guy. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is we were the bad guy because we lacked the courage to step in and warn them about the patterns and where they would end up. And we were the bad guys because we didn't shape in that generation a, a set of internal disciplines by which they would make good choices about how to use their time or what to do with their body. Or, um, and so in the end, we, we deceived. That's, that's the art of deception is it, it takes so many different forms. And um, we're seeing it now with you know, let's change language and definitions, let's change history, let's change pronouns and the way language works. Let's just let's just change all of that. That'll make us, you know, a better people, a better world, and that's just deception at work and the inability to see it. Yeah. It's that good. The deception's that good. And even we, I guess, also like those who know better have deceived, have one deceived themselves into thinking that um, saying no or 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 arguing or even simply just disagreeing is unloving, so that then the other person can just keep going on deceiving themselves. It's mm-hmm. like we're all just just we're all just allowing ourselves to deceive our own self, but like not yeah. even calculating in the fact that we're deceiving each other, but. We're all, we all just have to put each individual into our own silo. Um, and, and then love, whenever we love one another, it's just, we, we just say, oh, that's great. for I love that for you. <laughs> I love that for you. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I love that you can, yeah, that's really great that you're on that journey. Um, <laughs> that's not great. That's not loving either. No, it's not. That's just, I think we talked about that in our earlier yeah. podcast is. Parents are not loving their kids by essentially giving their kids the permission and the rationale in their head to think this is the way I can live my life for the rest of my life. You know, sometimes I can be, uh, I can come across kind of rude. Um, And I give people a hard time a lot 
Yeah. And so I, sometimes I can give too hard of a heart, too, too hard of a time. Um, and I can, uh, but even whenever I'm doing that, I can hurt somebody's feelings, but even whenever I'm giving somebody too hard of a, of a time, I'm not trying to hurt their, rarely am I trying to hurt their feelings. Yeah. There might've been times, but not in a long time. Um, and <clears throat> I only know that after like a year of doing something that this person doesn't like. And then all of a sudden they explode. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm not like, I, I love you as my friend. Did you think I was trying to do this? Like if you would have just told me, Hey dude, not cool. I don't really like that. You're yeah. being kind of a, a butthole right now. Um, <laughs> I would have appreciated you correcting me. Right. Right. And I'm not saying that in every scenario I would have just uh, said, okay, but like in something as obvious as that, yeah, like I don't want to be mean, and 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 so like I want that type of correction. It's like I don't want to be seen as a monster because I'm not trying to be one. Right. Um. But but not everybody. Not everybody is as well intentioned as you are. True. Right. And it's not. It's not a mystery. Nowadays, words have become weapons. People have allowed words to be literal weapons. And so anything that makes them uncomfortable or feel bad, they see that as a violent aggression against them. And so it just puts the idea of confrontation or discipline or... um, truth or accountability and on nothing but shaky ground you, you can't tell me anything wrong about me or you're being mean you're being aggressive i'll label you x y and z um what is that that's deception and it's the pursuit of wanting to do whatever i want to do and to not even have to rationalize it because even having even the very um, what we would all kind of see as expect, as an expectation of having a reason as to why you think a certain thing, that alone is a form of uh, essentially oppression. It's just a tool yeah. that people can use the patriarchy, the, the white supremacists, whatever, use to keep people down. Is is making you explain what you think. Which is why you don't really see a whole lot of, there are plenty of people that like, I would love to see debate that are um, intellectuals on both sides that have offered. Um, someone like an Ibram X. Kendi, for instance, who just doesn't ever go into a, like you don't see these people actually go and debate anybody. Which like if, uh, if I, I would never follow a side that was unwilling to debate. Uh, of, some, of, of trying to learn from someone. Like if you're going to mm-hmm. be unwilling to debate, I already throw you out. Yeah. Because that means you don't want yourself, you don't want to have to lay your ideas open. Um, it's too risky to to show them to be what they are. Yeah. Well, whenever you're deceiving, and a yeah. lot those people, if you the intellectuals on on on, on both sides are are both heavily responsible, um, and I and they aren't like the normal person who just thinks this stuff, but um, on either side. Uh, but they're actually, I think, kind of like what we were talking about with Nicodemus. It's like, hey, if you have influence and you're a teacher, 
you have more responsibility. Um, so yeah, I know they can't come out and out and out themselves, but I guess so. So whenever we're approaching God's word, um, and we can kind of bring this to a close, um, soon, maybe we can get into this a different time. We hit a whole bunch of topics, but whenever we approach God's word, um, the truth of scripture, uh, or even teaching, how should we approach it with um, kind of the things we've been talking about, which ultimately kind of come down to um, a subjective understanding? Do we bring ourselves into it and try to make sense out of it um, for me? Which, this is something a lot of Christians have done, the SOAP method. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of, I think something that's like, well, what application? What does this mean to you? It's a bad question for somebody who doesn't know anything. You should not, like, don't tell students or even adults, hey, what does this mean to you? It's what does this mean? Yes. What does God mean by this? What do the authors mean by this? It's not what does this mean to you? That question means nothing. Yeah. Yeah, so I've often told people uh, the Bible wasn't written to us. It was written for us. Mm. It was written to people who lived in the first century in the city of Ephesus. And they were encountering these cultural and social dilemmas that were having an impact on how they lived their faith out. So Paul writes them a letter and says, as a Christ follower, this is, this is how we respond to this, or this is how we um, adapt as Christians to following Jesus versus our, our society. So it was written to them. Then... Here we are centuries later, 20 centuries later. Um, we're asking the question, okay, so it was written to them for me. So now I have to ask the question, what was he saying to them? Then there, there are rules governing how to properly interpret the scripture. Following those rules, what is the principle that is, in Bible studies, called a transferable principle. So it transfers from the first century to the 21st century. What's the timeless principle? Um, and But basically, we're saying, okay, what was said in the first century to those people? What's true, whether you're the 1st century, 3rd century, 13th century, or 21st century? What's true to people in Ephesus that's also true for people in Africa and people in China and people in the United States? What, what is it that we share by way of a common experience that that principle applies? And, again, I can only speak from my perspective, I guess, sure there would be plenty of people who might disagree with me i think the bible's a fixed point and i adjust my life to it again recognizing the hermeneutical principles by which it's interpreted properly Um, i adjust my life to it we don't adjust it to my life so um I have to ask myself, what is the Bible teaching to its original audience 
what do I learn from it that applies to my life today? And then I conform to it rather than looking for ways to make it conform to my life or my, my preference. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's like, um, it's like the anchor, the anchors down in the rocks and it's the fixed point. And, you know, there may be some, you know, floating around that fixed point, of course, but, um, that anchors the place where you're, you're held steadfast. And that's how I see the scriptures. Yeah. Um, it was a great story and I may butcher the story. Um, it's cause I haven't heard it in a while, but a big naval ship, uh, sailing out on the ocean and it sees a light in front of it, you know, blinking Morse code. And the, the Navy ship says, um, I'm ex named ship of the United States Navy change course. It's telling the other boat to change course and the other boat, the other light indicates back, I'm not changing course. And, and so the Navy ship just powers up bigger words, bigger threats, no change course, uh, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and finally, uh, the other light says, I'm the lighthouse. <laughs> so I can't change course. I'm a fixed point of reference, and yeah. you're headed into danger. That's how I view the scriptures, is it's God's, inspired infallible word to human beings and it's as timeless as he is when the authors guided by the holy spirit composed it god knew that it would be fixed for the first century as well as the 21st century as well as the 23rd century and all the changes that would happen between the first and the 21st century all the development that would occur but God's word is timeless and it's it's not it's not flexible by way of you know geography. So everything that God wrote to the church at Ephesus, there's a principle for the church in San Antonio, for Sybil Creek Community Church, and we we are wise to do our very best to understand what it says to us and then we bring our lives in conformity to it. Yeah. And what we're seeing a lot these days is, well, I don't like what the Bible says, or there's parts of the Bible that are inconsistent with, you know, the, the progress of, of human, human beings and society. And so it's, it's out of date, or it's, it's whatever. It condones this or that, and we all know that that's wrong. And so there's just a lot of work being done over time to try to, you know, make the Bible say something that it doesn't. Yeah, you notice how uh, salvation by faith alone is never out of date. It's always something else. Yeah. Kind of odd, huh? Yeah, huh. exactly. Yeah, that one's kind of a pillar that doesn't really get thrown out most <laughs> of the time. Um, but no, I agree. And and I think that a good way that I've kind of gathered, well, one is just to see what other people think about it that are alive now. Mm-hmm. But then also like what people have thought about said um, topic, uh, theological topic or doctrine throughout time, because that's, that's what you were just essentially saying. It's like, well, what, 
what principle in, in, you know, first century can be carried all the way across? It's like, well, the same one that's, that's carried across through the time that's in between there. Yeah. Um, so what do other like great uh, theologians of the past uh, think about a, a certain thing? Cause like if it, to throw out all of that is just like, I'm never going to assert that I'm right now that I'm smarter than like Augustine or Aquinas or any of those people. Like, I'm not going to go that far and say, <laughs> right. yeah, no, he's dumb. Yeah, you know, can't say it. Yeah. Um, I think there's a beauty. I think there's a, there's a security. I think there's um, a hope in something that's been able to stand up mm. against the forces of time. Um, it's been tested. It's tested. It's stable. It's proven. Um, so rather than me spending a lot of time coming up with new ideas, I'm trying my best to understand the old ones. Yeah. And, you know, I know the pushback is, well, the Bible, the Bible, people in the Bible practice slavery and we never see God, you know, um, opposing it, which isn't true. Um, but we'll say, well, because we know slavery's wrong, then the Bible's obviously got huge problems with it. And we've made so much progress, we know slavery's not a way that we treat human beings. So the Bible has to change. And I go, no, see, you're not using consistent hermeneutical principles. God does not condone slavery. It was practiced at a point in time um, not because God was wrong, but because human beings' hearts are wrong, and they've done things in those veins because of the blindness of their hearts. But it's not God condoning it. So the Bible doesn't have to change. We have to understand the Bible better. And then, going back to you know the earliest part of this discussion, is then the parts of it that we don't understand, we don't demean and dismiss as being now it's it's incredible or lacking credibility we just say i still don't understand and therefore i have to at some point like the faith of a child i have to trust that my father god knows what's best mm. very true very true well we're going to get probably more into that topic next time or the week after um we'll see but see how much paul gets research done in order to prepare for well i'm also wanting to get enough so that way it's understandable because like i have so many thoughts that i end up getting lost like i did today in my own head (laughs) it wasn't like i was trying to follow something i just for just two other ones came in (laughs) you have a good brain i like your brain think well You're, you're thinking and uh I like that. You're you're a big reader, which is which is a great a great discipline. It helps if you if you aren't a good thinker. It what, makes reading? you a good thinker. Reading yeah. makes you it helps you if you're not a good reading thinker. Reading and writing. Well, one, you're never just gonna be a good thinker. Like you have to become well, you know, become one. But like people like thinking, actually like holding up an idea and then being like, Why is that idea stupid? Right. Why it's very hard to do that. 
because you're like tossing up different things and you're arguing with yourself inside your head. And so it's very hard to do that. So writing helps and reading helps because then other people, well, writing is more formalized and then whenever you read, it's characters on a page doing it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure there's a relationship between putting knowledge inside of your head, which leads to better capacity for thinking because now you you have you have um you have content around which to you know push your ideas and find them to be lacking or sufficient yeah not too long ago i i hadn't been reading for a long time so i just felt i felt like uh, like i had stalled Uh uh-huh and i kept on making like same similar references and some people i'm just going to reference all the time but um, oldies, but goodies, I suppose, right? Right. But uh, but I was like, oh, I need some new stuff. So, so yeah, it's pretty. It, it's really helpful. And I can also tell people don't read instantly, almost instantly. Oh, let me talk to them for like five minutes. I can tell you if they read or not. <laughs> I'll have to be careful now. No, oh, you read enough. <laughs> that's that's not a problem. <laughs> but. Well, All right, sir. Thanks for today's discussion. And yeah, thank you. Yeah, it may not be everybody's uh, everybody's cup of tea, but again, I think I've said this the last three podcasts. It's just a conversation. We're not holding ourselves out as you know the experts or authority on any any particular approach. We're just saying let's talk about this, trade some ideas around it, and. Um, those who listen can kind of take it for what it's worth. And sometimes that conversation is going to veer off in different directions. But um, I think that's the beauty of what we're doing. It's just the opportunity to push ideas around with the hope of, of being of help. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I enjoyed it and uh, we'll see, see everybody next week. Yeah.